In a scene that probably most of us can imagine, a man on his daily routines at work and things would periodically stop by this same little country store. This little country store, the proprietor there had an employee named Jake, and Jake, by all appearances, was the laziest person on the face of the earth. And one day this man, stopping by to pick up his coffee and a snack for the day, goes in, he noticed Jake's not there. And he asked the proprietor of the store, he said, so where's Jake today? He says, oh, Jake, Jake retired. And he said, he retired? Well, who's going to fill his vacancy? And the owner said, Jake didn't leave no vacancy. <laughs> and I wonder if one of us retired. Now, not because of age, but maybe just prematurely, just stepped out of the, the game, as it were, stepped out of the work. Would we leave a vacancy? I mean, would it leave a mark? I mean, if whatever you're doing right now for the service of the king, for the sake of the kingdom of God, if you stopped doing it today, would we notice? Would there be a vacancy? See, I was thinking about this message today, and I was telling Don as we were sitting down there, uh, the more I think about a message sometimes over the weekend, um, the fatter that message becomes, not leaner. And I thought, maybe I'm skipping over an assumption that I shouldn't, well, assume. You know, the idea of the message and the title of it is useful to the king. But I'm preaching that message with the presumption that most of us, if not all of us who are Christians, want to be useful to the king. I mean, after all, that's what we were saved for. You know, when I read Ephesians chapter 2, and the glory of God in our salvation, by grace have you been saved through faith as a gift of God, not of works, it's not of yourselves, lest anyone should boast. And then the next verse tells us that God saved us in advance for good works. I mean, not only did God purpose to save us, he purposed to save us for and to something which is good works. And so this idea of good works has just been bouncing around in my mind all this week. What good works am I doing? In what way am I, am I tangibly, intentionally serving the king? When am I going out of my way? When am I choosing service to him over some other pursuit or activity? I mean, how am I useful to him? To what degree am I useful? Now, you may be thinking that those who are useful to the king really just fall into certain categories. I mean, the ones that are really talented, the ones that have just certain skills or a certain personality type, maybe those are the ones that are most useful. Or maybe you're thinking, I'm not trained enough. You know, those who have been to seminary, perhaps, or a Bible college, or have had lots of, just lots of training and development, people pouring in, and those are the ones that God is going to use. And I'm not saying that training is not worthwhile. In fact, Paul tells Timothy, train yourself for godliness. Training certainly is part of the equation for usefulness, but there are more than a few. In fact, there are plenty, far too many people who have been trained far beyond their usefulness. You say, well, I don't really know the Bible that well. I wish I knew the Bible better. If I was a better Bible scholar, then I would be more intentional. I would be more active. I would try to do more. And again, the same criteria applies. There are plenty of people who know far more than they ever do. And just because they know well doesn't mean that they live well and are useful to the king. In fact, what we see in today's text is really this. There is one criteria that overarches 
all the others. One criteria that is so primary, so focused on by God, that all others pale in comparison. The one criteria for those who would be useful to the king. So I want you to pray with me today that one, God would stir our hearts to be useful, to desire that. That we wouldn't be sort of like, uh, I don't know, spectator Christians. You know, I was sitting there watching a game yesterday, as many of you did watch football on Saturday. I just happened to be at this one live, so I get the commentary of all the people around me. Experts, all of them. <laughs> Vast amounts of coaching experience, team building experience, recruiting acumen. I was really amazed that I was so blessed to be sitting in the upper decks with such geniuses <laughs> of people. I thought, are we not like that? We are good at commentating, speculating, what ifing all the action on the field. Well, my challenge for you today is not to sit on the sidelines, not to be an armchair quarterback or a would-be coach, but to get in the game, get in the action. How does God want to use you? Today I'm going to show you from Scripture the primary criteria for that sort of usefulness. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the songs that we have sung today that you put on Patrick's heart and mind to lead. I thank you for the challenge of the scriptures we've heard today. We've been challenged to think rightly about your absolute knowledge of us. We've been convicted to ask you to change our hearts, to cause us to no longer desire sin, but to desire the straight path, the right way. We've been encouraged today by the promise that you give mercy to those who humbly seek you in repentance. And so, Father, I, I place this burden, this, well, this responsibility on you, that, Father, you would stir the hearts of the people today to desire to be useful to you, and that by your Spirit you'd work in the hearts of us all today, rooting out that which would keep us from being useful and building in that which would make us useful to you. So, Lord... I thank you in advance for the promise of your word. I look forward to seeing it in action in me and in the lives of the people here that you give us the ability to will and to work for your good pleasure. To want it, to do it, you do that for us. So, Father, may we desire and do exactly what's pleasing to you. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bible to 2 Timothy chapter 2. We're in verse 20 today. And I want to set the context just a moment before I read the passage, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 20. Now, the context we saw last week, and again, think of this message as a part of a wider message of, of a letter, a single letter that Paul has written to Timothy, encouraging him as a minister in a difficult context. We get that basic premise. This is a place where you're going to find a lot of opposition. But the most significant opposition you need to be aware of is not the external. That is constant in every age, every era, every time and place where the church has existed, the world, the enemy, Satan will oppose it. That's not unique to the first century. It's not unique to the 21st century. But there's also something not unique to the challenge of the church. That's the challenge within, the challenge of false teachings, deviant teachings, immaterial teachings, inconsequential teachings, things that would, if not completely deter people from the truth, would distract them from it so they're pursuing things that don't matter. And so he's challenging Timothy to a right understanding of the truth and living in a way that accords with that truth. Not simply so that you deny the truth by your life, so you're not worth listening to because 
you're immoral at the core while you teach something else, but that you understand how these two things are wed. Because what I believe, in ways I may not immediately be able to trace, downstream will always affect what I do. My beliefs are always creating or enabling or endorsing my behaviors. So Timothy, I want you to get these things right. So the immediate context of the text was the challenge of the false teachers in the early church. He mentioned two by name, Hymenaeus and Philetus. And he reminded Timothy, God knows those who are his. God knows the hearts of all of these people. And he uses an Old Testament comparison. God knows those who are his. God knows the truth about us, not just what we say and what other people hear from us, but he knows why we say it, what's going on in our hearts. He knows if we really believe what we say. He knows if we're really doing in private what we're teaching, challenging, commanding other people to do publicly. He knows all these things about us. So in that context, in verse 19, he says this, since God knows those who are his, here's what those who are his should do. Let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Those who name the name of the Lord should depart from iniquity. I mean, the defining mark of a believer is not what I know, it's how I live. Now, we know this, what I know does affect how I live, but the primary mark is not what I know. It's how am I living? Am I living as one who's been transformed by Christ? Am I living as one who has surrendered to the authority of Christ and His Word? Am I living as one who walks with the Spirit, so the Spirit's guiding what I do, not just my own impulses, desires, personality, all those things. So the context is let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now with that being said, I'm going to answer the why to that in just a moment, but let me go back and start in verse 20 and read this portion of the challenge. He says, Now in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he'll be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So, flee youthful passions, pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So again, here's the challenge. God's people depart from iniquity. If you're you're in Christ, you're departing from iniquity. And here's the answer why. Because God wants to use your life. He wants to use my life for his good purposes. Timothy, I want you to be a vessel, and he's using another analogy. Paul's great at these analogies, these metaphors. And he's switching them to the metaphor of a household and useful instruments in the household. And he's saying, God wants to use your life for his purposes. What's this analogy look like broken down? Well, the great house he's talking about, in a great house, he's talking about the visible church. In the visible church, that part that you can see and touch and feel, the brothers and sisters all around you, in that great house, the household of God is another term that Paul used. Remember 1 Timothy 3.15, that we are a household of faith. In fact, these letters that Paul has written to Timothy, according to 1 Timothy 3.15, were to instruct believers how they ought to live in this house, this great house of faith. 
This great house of faith is a visible church. And he says, in this visible church, all these people gathered, there are vessels. Well, you know what that means. There are people. But not all people can be set to the same purposes. These people are instruments in the master's hands. Some are for honorable use, some are for dishonorable. You know, we all could be honorable vessels, but we all are not. Timothy used to be, no, excuse me, Paul used to be a dishonorable vessel. He had skills and abilities and training, but he used the life that God had given him to destroy the church that God had given his son to buy, to purchase with his own blood. He was a dishonorable vessel. But he made himself an honorable vessel by surrendering to the king and following him, trusting him, using, allowing him to use his life for his purposes. Judas was the opposite of that. Judas was one who was chosen to be a good vessel for honorable purposes. But by betraying his king, by choosing the rewards of this life versus the eternal, he became a dishonorable vessel. I mean, you get the analogy, I don't want to press it too hard, but imagine this great house are all sorts of vessels. There's some that you would eat from some that you would happily drink from. There's some that you might set out on a table when you've got special guests and you want the best that you have that you can put before them. There are others, it doesn't matter how thirsty you are, you're not drinking from that cup. You're not eating off of that plate. You're just not going to do it. It's just not clean. There are honorable purposes, like those things we might eat from. There are dishonorable ones, like that pan that is a bed pan, not a baking pan, and you get the drift. This is the challenge to us. We get to choose how we're going to use, be useful to the king. But he has but one condition. He has but one condition. The master's condition is that his vessels must be clean if he's going to use them. That's why we sang these songs today to remind us. That's why we heard these scriptures today to remind us if I'm going to be useful to him, the primary criteria is not my beauty or my skill or my training. It's not even my spiritual giftedness, though all those things can play a part to varying degrees. Cleanliness. The most gifted of us will not be useful to the king if the inside of the cup is dirty. The most trained, the most talented, the most naturally gifted will not be useful to the king. And he says this cleansing that we have to do, this is a conscious and willful cleansing. Listen to the words that he uses. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable. You want to be useful to Jesus? You want God to work in your life for his glory? You want to be one of those that you can stand before him one day and he says, well done, good and faithful servant. Because you did the things he created you to do. You used the gifts that he'd given you. You availed yourself of the opportunities in front of you. I mean, you were in the game. And you've got to take it upon yourself to cleanse yourself. I'm not talking about the psychology of self-help. I'm not saying you've got to forgive yourself. I'm saying you have to evaluate your own heart. You have to seek God and asking Him to shed light on what He sees. You have to be willful. You have to be conscious. You have to be deliberate of cleansing yourself. And the result of this conscious, willful cleansing, he says, is so that you will be holy. The term means set apart. It means now these I will use for these purposes. I will use for these purposes. You know, some of you have pets too. <clears throat> I know, I do. Um, I'm a little less concerned about if I finish dinner at night and I've got some stuff on my plate and I hold the plate down and let the dog lick it. Kind of freaks my wife out a little bit. I don't know why. Maybe she's thinking she'll be eating off of that plate tomorrow night. 
I'm trusting in the efficacy of my dishwasher, but that's just a different thing. This is internal conflict. I'm not too concerned about it. But now that some of you know my dog has licked that plate, you might not want to come to dinner at my house. <laughs> you might not trust my dishwasher. What I'm saying is for her, there are certain things. No, dogs don't get that. They don't eat out of that bowl. They don't drink from that. They don't lick that. We don't give them that. This is theirs. This is ours. These are different purposes, clean and unclean sort of purposes. We get to determine this by how we pursue righteousness. The setting apart, the idea of holy is that God says, now, now I can do things that I could not do before in your life. Now listen, don't read into what I'm saying by what I'm not saying. I'm not saying the criteria of usefulness is perfection. I'm saying the criteria for usefulness is righteousness, is cleanliness. It's confessing what God convicts me of by His Spirit. It's about choosing to walk in what I know is right and abandon what I know is wrong. It's not hiding unconfessed sin. It's not living in a way secretly that's different than what people think of me publicly. It's, it's the honest pursuit of holiness, living rightly before God. God, show me. Asking God on a regular basis, on a daily basis, so that I keep short accounts of my own sin. And I'm asking God to evaluate my heart so I confess and am made right before Him. Set apart, and that set apart segues to useful. Who knows what God might use you for? Who knows what God might do? Who knows how you might be the instrument in God's hands to affect your whole family or your extended family or to change the culture where you go to school or in your classroom or at your office or at your place of business or what he might do in your family or in your marriage when you purpose to purity. What God might start doing then. You see, the truth of this passage is telling us is that I'm only as useful to the king as I am pure. There's a corollary there. To the degree that I'm pursuing purity and righteousness and holiness is the degree to which God will use me as he sees fit. There's no equation here. You get this much use, you get this much impact, you, you have this much contribution to the kingdom of God. Only God can determine those things. But there's a corollary here of purity and usefulness, and we can't get around it. And the idea here in Timothy, and I don't want us to miss this, because I think sometimes we make a disconnect between these two things as if you can separate them, and you cannot it's usefulness, it's purity in doctrine and life, or life and doctrine. And let me pause here just for a moment to make sure the point is clear. Certain segments of us would really pursue doctrinal purity. We want to make sure that we get everything correct. We want to make sure that our systems work and our pieces fit and we're accurate in every point, every principle. And that's important. I mean, Paul talked to Timothy about that so much. How else will you recognize false teaching? How else will you perpetuate the truth? How else will you guard the gospel if you don't do this? I mean, we've seen the prescient warnings of Paul to Timothy in First and Second Timothy played out in our culture. How did we get where we are? How do you have so many Christians and believers deviating from those things which are clearly, clearly true? I read a statistic just yesterday that 30% of Southern Baptists, okay, so that's who we are, even if you don't self-identify, 30% of Southern Baptists believe that abortion should be legal in all circumstances. And we were one of the better groups there. Other evangelical groups were approaching 50. Some Christian groups were approaching 60 and even 
That's just one snippet of one example of, a, of the deviation from biblical truth to life practice and how you can't separate what you believe and what you do. They're inseparable. And so doctrine is important, but doctrine without godliness is gross hypocrisy. God doesn't save us to become cold, indifferent scholars. He saves us to remake us into the image of Christ. By the same token, those of you who just think about, I just want to live well. I just want to do good. I want to do good things. I want to love my neighbor. I want to be a good person. And I'm not, I don't care about doctrine. I don't care about theology. Theology simply means what we think about God. And what we think about God does inform all of us. It's a both and. I root these things together in my doctrine and in my life because bad beliefs inevitably lead to bad behavior. In the book of Hebrews, for instance, we see a church that's backslidden. The author of Hebrews is writing to a people who have reverted to ungodly behavior. How did they get there? How did you go from believing this, trusting this, to now you're living this? So much to the point that Hebrews is filled with warnings about apostasy, that you would abandon the faith that you once believed. They did so because of their failure to heed sound doctrine, to stick to the truth, to grab it and not let go of it, to believe it. The author of Hebrews writes this in chapter 5, verse 12. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles and oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. Did you catch that? So he speaks to the body of believers there and said, you know, you've been Christians long enough that you all ought to be teachers. Was he saying? You ought to know more than you know by now. You ought to have a, a foundation of doctrine and theology that's solid, that's, that's rooted, that's life-giving. You ought to. He said, but solid food is for the mature, for those who have, powers, who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Did you catch that? The connection between the two? You ought to be teachers. You ought to know more. Because if you knew more, your consciences would be trained. Your ear, your heart, your mind, your eyes would be trained better to recognize true and false, good and evil, and you wouldn't be in the condition that you're in. You wouldn't be sinning like you are. You wouldn't be backslidden like you are. In a great blog article I read this week from Tim Chalice, he talks about the challenges, the difficulties, really the, the cost, I guess you could say, of false teaching in a local church. Let me quickly summarize. He says, false doctrine confuses truth and error, obviously. If we're teaching that which is false, then we won't know. We won't recognize. That's what we see in these warnings over and over again. False teaching promotes sinfulness, prevents godliness. False teaching elevates ungodly leadership. That's why Timothy was to call out those by name. Paul said these two particularly. We've already put one of them out. Now another person has stepped in their place. False doctrine removes God's blessings from his people. And something we're seeing today more and more is false Doctrine debilitates the church in times of difficulty. What do we do when things aren't smooth? What do we do when we're not in the majority? What do we do when there are really challenges to what we hold true? And it weakens us for the future. By the same token, sound doctrine distinguishes truth from error. Sound doctrine promotes godliness. It prevents sin. Sound doctrine qualifies godly leadership. Who should be teaching and leading those who know the truth? It ensures God's blessing. It protects against false teachers emerging. It equips the church for every time that it may face and every challenge that it may have to endure. 
and it strengthens the church for the future. So he's telling Timothy, guard both of these. Remember what he told Timothy? Guard your life and your doctrine closely. You see, the truth, knowing the truth, and living out what you know with honesty, with integrity, privately and publicly, that's the means to being useful to God. Knowing what's true about God, knowing what God has revealed in His Word, knowing what God requires of us as His people, as our King, knowing this truth, submitting to this truth and living this truth, that's the means of usefulness. This is not a complicated equation. Do I believe what God has said? Do I do what God requires? Can God pick me out of His vast toolbox, out of the many vessels available to Him? When God wants something done, will He reach for me? Will He use me? Can He use me? Or will He have to move past me to someone else who decided to be clean when I chose something else? Therefore, he says, you maintain this purity. Listen to the next part of that phrase. He tells him exactly. He talks about the vessels. He uses the analogy of vessels. Some are ready for every good work. They're ready for the master to pick up and say, you, right here, right now, I'm going to use you. So what do you do? Flee youthful passions and pursue the fundamentals of Christianity. I love that phrase for a second, and this is one for you to wrestle with. This is one of the benefits, I think, for us having small groups where you discuss these texts a little bit later. So this will be a good discussion for you next week when you're sitting in, in your life group talking about 2 Timothy chapter 2. He says, flee youthful passions. What is he talking about here? Well, the obvious thing that first pops in our mind probably is sexual sin, lustful sorts of things. The sins of youth that we would most equate with that area of our life. But it's not just that part of our life that marked us when we were, when we were young. You think about what you were like when you were less mature, when you didn't have a lot of wisdom when you thought that you were bulletproof, when you thought that you could outlive anything that you did, when you thought that there weren't consequences to behaviors, when you thought that you could make up for it later. You think about the sins of youth, the youthful passions, when you didn't have such a good hold on your, on your temper or your anger, when you gave way to whatever you wanted to do and you were impetuous, when you just did what you felt, when you didn't care about other people. You continue down this list, he says... Flee those youthful passions. Flee those things that marked you before you knew Christ. Flee those things when you didn't exert self-control, when you didn't live with integrity, when you didn't have wisdom and foresight, when you were living for yourself and not living for me. Flee the youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. So he lays out this big four of Christianity. Again, this is not a hard equation here. The difficulty is not in understanding the passage. The difficulty is in obeying the passage. I mean, this is the parallel responsibility of every Christian all the time. There are certain things in my life I've got to flee from. And the idea of fleeing here is to understand the, the danger and the potential damage that sin has. See, that's a whole other concept implicit in the text I think we miss sometimes. We have sanitized sin. You know, we've turned it into you know, just less than good things or mistakes or just behaviors that are less than beneficial. We sanitized it. When Paul tells Timothy, flee from this, he's saying, do you not realize the destruction you can bring on your life? And because Timothy is a leader of, of leaders and a leader in the church, the damage you bring into other people's life by not fleeing from sin, 
Sin destroys. Sin wants to have you. Sin is not mastered by us. In fact, sin was our master before Jesus set us free from that. Jesus came into this world to save us from sin, its control, its power, its effect over us. Sin will not be mastered by us. If you think you have it under control, if you think you have a different grip on it than somebody else, if you think it doesn't affect you like it affects other people, if you think you're unique when it comes to sin, you have deceived yourself. He says, so you flee from this. Understand sin, the very nature of sin. I've got to flee from this, even if I can't see the lasting harm that it will do. I don't have to understand this to do this. To believe that sin, when it's finished, brings death. That tells us enough about the nature of sin, the progressive nature of sin. It's taking me somewhere. It's leading me in places I didn't intend to go. It's making me into someone I never thought I would be. It's causing me to do things I never thought I would do because it's leading me towards death. So I flee it because I understand the danger of it. But being a good Christian isn't just fleeing from sin. So here's the thing. I, mean, I think we would be legalists then at best if our entire focus was on all the things I'm not going to do, all the things I'm going to avoid, all the things I'm going to be against, all the things I'm going to make sure I don't do. It's only part of the equation. The joyful part of the equation is to pursue if I'm fleeing from this, I'm pursuing this, and I'm pursuing righteousness. God, how can I live in a way that pleases you? I want to be more like Christ. I want to be better than I used to be. I don't want to be better than you. I want to be better than me. I want to be better than I used to be because my aim is not to be better than you. My aim is to become like Christ. I want to get better here. God, help me to be better. Help me to be more righteous. Help my faith to grow so I'm not so vulnerable to difficulty and hardship and doubt so I say God no matter what I'm going to trust you you give you take away I'm still here God I trust you love and peace you understand the terms he says you maintain your purity by understanding the danger so that you run from it and understanding the worst so you run towards it you pursue it then verse 24 as the king's servant then and by the way let me add this maybe put it in your margin somewhere just so you know that we're on the same page here I'm not simply suggesting that this is for ministers, elders, leaders in the church. I'm saying that the teachings of First and Second Timothy are applicable to all believers. Every believer who's going to live in an ungodly culture, every believer who's going to live among other believers in a church setting, and needs to know how should we live together, and how should we encourage one another, and how should we hold up the truth together. Every believer who's ever going to open their mouth and speak the truth in any context, everyone who would be useful to the king, a king's servant, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Now let me pause there for a moment. We have to be careful that in our interpretation, no, let me say our application of Scripture, that we don't reduce the statements of Scripture to just personality types. Let me explain what I mean. So the Bible says the, the man of God, the servant of God, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. Now, some of you in this room are naturally quarrelsome. Some of you are naturally peaceful and passive. You hate conflict. You do everything you can to avoid conflict. You'll say to people what you want them to hear. You'll just get quiet in those moments. I mean, you would avoid conflict 
altogether. For you, you're thinking, well, that passage is easy. I do that all the time. No, this is not what I'm talking about. This passage speaks to us both. It speaks to the person like me. I can remember that fateful time I was sitting in a deacon's meeting, and this was in my previous church, and we were going around pretty good around the table, and it got warmer and warmer in the room until one of the older deacons just opened up his Bible, put his finger on it, and slid it over to me. I was sitting beside him. He slid it over to me, and here's a verse his finger was on. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. So I felt like I was put in check, you know, so I stopped. And I realized for the naturally quarrelsome person, this still applies. Again, it's not an out for personality. It means if that's you and you're going to serve the Lord, you've got to check you. You've got to check you. Our personalities don't give us a pass. The person who says, this is just how I am, you know, this is just my personality, you know, I just, I, I don't know, I've got a quick temper, but hey, you know, I didn't mean it. Whatever the context and whatever use of that, our personalities are not in play when it comes to godliness. God requires godliness of all of us, and our personality types don't give us a pass. That just means there are some areas you're going to have to work harder on than somebody else. Some areas you have to focus on more. He says he must not be quarrelsome, but do this. Kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured to do his will. What's he saying? Listen, Christian, person of influence, servant of the king, one that God would use, stay faithful to and focus on the clear revelation of truth in Scripture. This is your greatest tool. This is your fiercest weapon. This is your firmest foundation. This is the means by which God will use you most. This is why I said, maybe in not such clear words a week or so ago, when it comes to your conversations, whether with weaker brothers, newer Christians, or people who aren't believers at all, don't seed the Bible. Don't give up the Bible. When people say, you know, I don't believe, well, I don't believe the Bible, as if that's the trump card. Now, oh, well, I'm, I got, I, I, what? Okay, what do you want to talk about? That is the truth. You know it's the truth. And the Bible is not just a book of words. It's the Word of God. Use it. Don't be afraid to say, but the Bible says. Well, you can't use the Bible to substantiate your beliefs. Actually, I can, because that is what gives me my belief. So let me share with you what the Bible says. And have this belief in the back of your mind, even as you're doing that, the Bible is living and active. And it's sharp. And it's able to divide. It's able to get to the heart, the core, the soul of a person. It separates. It reveals. It cuts through. That's why we have to learn to use it well. But don't give up the Bible. Stay faithful to the clear revelation of truth in Scripture. And remember this. I'll let you discuss this in your life groups to figure out the best application of how it fits your setting, your context, the people that you talk to. Don't get caught up in the speculative and controversial. There's way too much to be done. There's way too much at stake. There's only so much time that can be given to things that frankly don't really matter. I'm not saying that truth doesn't matter. All truth is important. But there's some truths that are weightier than other truths. And I think about the culture in which the church lives today. We have to be focused on the things that truly matter. Be able to speak those truths with clarity and not get caught up in all the things that really don't. Sometimes people ask me questions or have speculations about things. And I won't say this because I'm trying to not be that guy who's quarrelsome. But in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, I don't really care because I don't think that really matters. But we can talk about it for a moment. But the focus is on this. Let's keep this truth out there. Who is God? Who is man? How should man respond to God? What does God require of us? What judgment is coming that we should be warning people of? And how can people avoid the judgment that's coming? How do we announce the kingdom? Beware of all the distractions. All the distractions. 
from this real gospel work. And when I say that, I'm not simply saying, hey, evangelism, evangelism, evangelism at the expense of discipleship. I'm saying there are pursuits that don't really matter. Let's be sure that we're pursuing those things which matter, which fit the scriptures. Is this what God says? And let's say it. Let's say what God says. Let's do what God says we ought to do. And let's do it with, with courage. I want to finish up this message. And I'm going to have to do it quickly. But maybe this will be the most important personal part for you. As I think about what he said here and how we communicate. And how we communicate. So if I'm not supposed to be quarrelsome, that's the, the negative command. Don't be quarrelsome. Well, here's the positive side of how we should communicate. So I want you to think about this. The next time you're engaged in that discussion with someone who doesn't agree with you or believe like you do or maybe doesn't believe anything about God at all, how should you communicate truth with them? And I, I wrote this just sort of overarching statement, but I want to break it down with the words that Paul used in this text. Our teaching should be to persuade. All of our teaching should be persuasive in nature. Our teaching is not meant to demean or to destroy. Our teaching should be persuasive, not demeaning and destructive. I'm not attacking the person. I'm attacking the lie or the falsehood or the danger. And I'm not trying to completely wreck them. I'm not trying to win and defeat them. That's what I mean by destruction. Our aim as Christians is to persuade them. I want to persuade you. I want you to understand. And so if I'm teaching to persuade, not to make a person feel stupid, unworthy, or to just win the conflict, win the battle, there are certain things that have to be in play. And here are the words that Paul used. Kindness. Kindness. When I'm having that discussion with someone who maybe disagrees with me emphatically, enthusiastically, God, help my heart and guard my words so that I do not express what I say with malice, with anger. God, help me to do this with kindness. I'm not talking about faux kindness. I'm not talking about the unwillingness to say things that are hard for people to hear or that I know they're not going to want to hear. But I'm saying at the attitude level, I'm not, I'm not mad at you. I have to guard myself at that because my natural tendency is if you disagree with me, I'm going to get frustrated at you. Why would you disagree with me? How dare you disagree with me? God, help me to not have that sort of malice, that anger, that attitude towards them. Number two, ability. I mean, this sort of goes without saying, right? I ought to know what I'm talking about. As a Christian, we ought to know what we're talking about. That's why we have Bible studies. That's why we have open classes. That's why we disciple one another. That's why you study the Scriptures. That's why we gather together under the teaching of the Word so that we're getting more and more equipped that we have the skill of wielding the truth. Patience. Well, that's just what it says. Patience. When he says patient with evil, that doesn't mean tolerant of evil. That doesn't mean unconcerned with evil. That's the simple recognition that they didn't get here overnight and they may not get away from this in this conversation, but that I might have to be in this for the long haul. I, I might have to be persistent here. I have to take time. I have to trust process. I have to stay engaged. I have to be patient to know that it may take a little while with this person. They may not respond to everything I'm saying right off the bat. This may be that analogy we often use, overuse. I might have to plant some seeds here, but I have to make sure they're real gospel seeds. They're real seeds of the truth. 
I'm saying patient. They've been discipled by a belief system, by a culture, by a life experience, by the stains and effects of their own sins for a long time. That's not likely to come undone in one conversation. Be patient. Next, courage. I was going through this list again for myself, and I was thinking, which of these are most challenging for me? And I think for me, the most challenging one might be the courage one. Not because I'm fearful of what they might do. Like if I say this to you, I'm going to get punched in the mouth. Or that I'm going to get canceled and God forbid I can't tweet anymore. Or my Facebook account gets shut down and I can't share with you my favorite funny memes and pictures of my dogs anymore. I'm not talking about that kind of courage. I'm talking about the courage that makes you willing in that moment to speak to someone's most vulnerable point. Their sin, their failure, their regret, their hurt, their struggle. I'm talking about the courage to engage. I'm talking about the courage to simply tell the truth. Let's not have to tell you the truth here. I've got to be willing to tell you the truth, whether that's to my own kids or to you or to my neighbor. I just, it's the courage to be brave enough to confront with the truth. And then gentleness. I think of the promise of Jesus from Matthew chapter 12. We're told of Jesus and it quotes a prophecy from the Old Testament about Jesus. Matthew 12, 19. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, it says, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. The idea of gentleness, knowing that the people I'm talking to in so many situations, they're a bruised reed already. They're already bruised. They're already beaten down. There's already stuff under the surface that I may not see or perceive. There's already regrets and difficulties and challenges. I'm not trying to break you more. I'm trying to handle you with the gentleness of your life, saying, listen, I get it. I get there's brokenness here, and I get there's difficulty here. What will we do now? What would God have you to do now? What's your right response? And two more, faith. This one's theological, but it's eminently practical. Because I don't want to rush over this phrase. So as the Lord's servant, you're not being quarrelsome, you're being kind, you're correcting with gentleness, you're, you're, doing, you're patiently enduring all these things. And then he said this. This was a statement to Timothy's core, to his foundations. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. The operative factor in every conversion, the operative power in every change of mind or heart, the operative element in every redemption story is God. You and I are just tools. We're tools. We're tools in the toolbox of the Master. We're servants of the King. And so what we do, we do with the confidence that God Himself changes hearts and thinking. The Spirit of God brings about conviction and godly sorrow. The Spirit of God enlightens. The Spirit of God breathes new life. We're trusting this all the time. This is the faith of the faithful when it comes to the Word of God, when it comes to teaching, when it comes to talking, when it comes to speaking, when it comes to conflict and controversy. I'm just trusting that God would grant them repentance, and I'm praying that all the time. God, in this moment, you... 
God, not in this moment. May I be operative. May I be primary. But God, that you would be. That's faith. And finally, the word love. You might be looking at that text and saying, wait, I don't see that one. Did you, you just said that, right? Because that's the Christian answer. At the end, you say love and Jesus, right? And then that finishes up the sermon. Well, listen to what he said. Not only am I praying that God would grant them repentance so that the fruit of that repentance would be they come to their senses because to deny God is the, is, the, is the height of idiocy, insanity. To go against God, that is insanity. To come to your senses is to recognize who God is and what God desires and what God is doing, and that's coming to your senses. I'm praying this will be the fruit of God's interaction and that the ultimate result of this would be they would escape the snare of the devil. Just circle that in your notes just for a moment. I'm going to finish on this point, though I've gone long. Escape the snare of the devil. When you're in these kind of conversations, you're in these sort of moments, when you want to be useful to the king, you recognize, listen, that person is enslaved. That person's ensnared. That, that, that person's in a cage. That person's in chains. I, I, can't, I can't hate them for the condition that they're in. It's my love for you that's telling you of the bondage that you're in. It's telling you of the ways of the enemy. It's telling you of the lies of Satan. It's my, it's my love for you that wants you to not be in that snare. Do you see? I'm not trying to destroy you in that cage. I'm trying to set you free from that cage. And so when I challenge that belief or that behavior, that choice or, or that lifestyle, that, that, that doctrine or that deviancy, it's just I don't want you to be ensnared by the devil anymore. And that can only come out of love. God, give me a love. You pray in those moments. God, give me a love for this person that they wouldn't, they wouldn't be confused anymore. They wouldn't be, believe the lies anymore. That they wouldn't be trapped in this anymore. That they would be set free of this now. So all those things require this approach to them. And that is how God makes me useful to him. I pray that God would use you to be useful to him. Today, tomorrow, this week. That you would pursue righteousness and peace and joy. And that you would flee those, those youthful lusts, those youthful desires. That you would choose to cleanse yourself so that you could be a vessel of honor that God could use. May God do that in each of us. Let's pray. Father, we submit to your word. We, we take you at your word. We believe your word to be true and timeless. We believe it to be powerful and sharp and living, speaking to us right here, right now, today. Though it was written to Timothy and to the church at Ephesus, it surely was written for us and as well, and so, Father, speak to us through it. Lord, a lot of components, a lot of moving parts today, but, Father, I pray that by your Holy Spirit you would bring to bear in each of those who, who call your name, each of, us, each of us who are named as Christians, Father, what you'd have us to do with what your Word says today. And Lord, maybe this message we've heard is for a situation we're in right now, or maybe it's for a future day. But either way, Father, I pray you'd embed it in us and that we would we would do it. Lord, I pray for two things primarily. I pray for a growing desire in each of us to do good works, to serve you. And I don't know exactly what those works will be, how you want to use us. But Father, I know that we cannot be passive in this. We cannot sit by doing nothing. What would you have us to do? How would you have us to serve you? You're the king 
We serve at your command. We're soldiers in your army. We're, we're farmers in your field. We're running to win the prize that you offer the faithful. Lord, show us what you have us to do. Build our desire to usefulness. And Father, show us, even though it may bring us temporary pain, regret, sorrow, show us what we must do to cleanse ourselves, what we must be cleansed of so that we could be a vessel of honorable use, useful to the King. And Father, I pray that not only would we feel sorry for or regrets over, but Father, we would repent and abandon sin in the power of your Spirit and begin to pursue righteousness instead. Father, have your way with us now, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.